Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. It's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure, uh, the geekiest choose-your-own-adventure <laughs> with, with crazy economic implications. There's a high-stakes choose-your-own-adventure game playing out on Capitol Hill. Choice. Do you raise the debt ceiling? Turn to page six. Or do you let the country default? Turn to page seven. Page seven. You let the country default. The world falls apart. And um, pretty much the potential outcomes are about as depressing as, you know, the star you die endings to the regular Choose Your Own Adventure book. The objective? Address the debt limit before the U.S. defaults. Something that's never happened, which would throw the nation into economic chaos. The players? A split 50-50 Senate, starring the usual cast, Bernie Sanders. This $3.5 trillion plan is a mountain, and Bernie Sanders is ready to move mountains. Chuck Schumer. Who is going to flinch when Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer eventually brings the debt limit question to the floor? And don't forget Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell has said that nothing would change his mind. He wouldn't come around. <laughs> that does sound like him. Yes, that's a perfect negotiating uh, position. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. My colleague Jennifer Schultes covers budget and appropriations for Politico. This is the biggest story of the fall, and it's, it's major. It's going to affect every single major negotiation for months to come. She's been watching the scene on Capitol Hill as senators all try to avoid a political cliff dive over the debt limit. So we have $28 trillion in debt as a nation. $28 trillion. And our waiver on being able to borrow has expired. It expired on July 31st. So right now the Treasury Department is just trying to kind of scrap around, make sure that the money coming in matches the money going out. Just trying to keep the checkbook balanced while they sort this out. The clock is ticking. The Treasury Department is expected to run out of money this fall. And what happens if that money runs out? Well, if the U.S. defaults, it could crash the global economy. Throwing the economy into, you know, a catastrophe. But no one really knows what that would look like. Worldwide panic? There's only one way to find out. Democrats challenge Republicans to a game of chicken. It's a cliche, the classic game of political chicken. Put it in almost every story about this, but it really is. They left raising the debt ceiling out of this big $3.5 trillion social spending package. And by doing that, they're forcing Republicans to vote on raising the debt ceiling and also take the blame if we fall off that cliff. But the president and Democratic leaders have made clear that they do not want the debt limit to complicate movement of the $3.5 trillion plan. So 
That package passed without any GOP support, of course. And now it's on to the next step. And for now, Democrats are looking at increasing the debt ceiling, along with a sort of band-aid. At the end of September, the government runs out of money. That's a whole nother issue outside of the debt crisis. If the government runs out of money, there's a government shutdown. So for now, the Democrats' idea is to add an increase to the debt ceiling onto the bill that would fund the government and avoid a government shutdown. Got all that? But that's something that Republicans would have to sign on to. And all the while, the time bomb is ticking and nobody really knows when that default date is going to sneak up on us. This week, before that big social spending package could go anywhere, lawmakers and reporters were busy staying up all night. Because? Well, they sat through 14 painstaking hours of the procedural tradition known as Votorama. If you go back and you watch C-SPAN, you can see the fa- the looks on the faces of the senators as they were trying to keep their eyes open on camera in the Senate chamber. Jen was there all night covering the long and freewheeling debate over amendments to the budget resolution. And she remembers them all in detail. So I was actually uh, taking my nap during a, th- <laughs> a three-hour nap during that time. Caitlin was covering that one. So I- I'm not sure. Well, almost all of them. Anyway, the amendments are non-binding. None of them are going to become law. But they serve a larger political purpose for the minority, allowing them to force votes by Democrats on difficult political issues that put the majority in a tough spot. The idea is, by the end of the Votorama, Republicans have sort of sussed out political weak spots for the Democrats and know a little bit more about what tricky political issues they can use both in the upcoming policy battles that will dominate this fall and in next year's 2022 midterm elections. So Jen, when you're at Thanksgiving and explaining to your family what you do and your uncle doesn't know anything about the D.C. budget process, how do you explain the Votorama? So the Votorama I don't know why it was set up like this, but when you adopt a budget resolution, it's a free-for-all of amendments in a totally different way than you would have on a normal bill. Senator from Wyoming. Thank you, Madam President. I call up my amendment. President, I call up my amendment number. The Senator from Nevada. The clerk will report the amendment by number. Number 3055. Number. We do indeed have a long way to go. Usually the majority will curtail the amendment process on a normal bill and not allow the minority any amendments or allow very few amendments and uh, just basically jam it through a series of procedural votes. With the Votorama, with adopting the budget resolution, the minority can do as many amendments as they want as long as they're germane, which means they have something to do with the bill. Even if they're not germane, you might have to vote to basically swat them down because because they're not relevant to the bill. So you still can get your vote that way. So it's this big free-for-all. And the amendments are mostly, they're non-binding. So you can come up with pretty much anything you want to put in a campaign attack ad and hold the majority to that vote. And, you know, it's a procedural 
thing that goes along with the adoption of the budget resolution, but it's used more as punishment. So the minority, especially in the current setup where we have a 50-50 Senate, the budget resolutions are all adopted to unlock the reconciliation process and make the GOP not matter at all. So Republicans use that voterama as an opportunity to make life really difficult for their counterparts. And it's obviously difficult for all of them, including Republicans, especially, you know, some of these senators who are getting up there in years. That was one of the concerns that we heard this week from Senator John Kennedy was that he was saying it's, this is a real hardship for for the older senators. <laughs> but it's all right. I love voteramas, he said. <laughs> Wait a second. Do you mean because they're so old, it's really hard for them to stay up late at night? That was what he was saying. I think he thinks he's a spring chicken, and I'm sure he would tell you as much. (laughs) Did you see any health emergencies on the Senate floor? By my clock, this started at 11.52 a.m. Tuesday when they put forward the motion to proceed to the budget, to use some of the jargon. And it didn't finish until 3.51 a.m. Wednesday when the budget passed. So this was a Senate all-nighter, which is pretty rare, I assume. Did you see anyone kind of like that was looking like they couldn't make it? People were looking exhausted by the time that we rounded into 4 a.m. And astonishingly, some of them chose to do floor speeches after the fact. I was so confused uh, (laughs) just because it was their last opportunity to speak before they before they could leave town. So the normal routine is that these lawmakers go and speak to an empty chamber, even if it's 4 p.m. on a regular Tuesday. But now we're at 4 a.m. on the last day before August recess, and they some of them still stood up and spoke to the C-SPAN camera solo. So I don't know. That's some stamina. Uh, but yeah, they were exhausted. Senator Lindsey Graham, who is the ranking Republican on the Budget Committee, this was his first day back was the Voterama. He's the manager of of the Voterama. Wait a second. I thought Lindsey Graham was quarantining because he had a COVID breakthrough infection. He did. So he, he was quarantining for about 10 days and then he popped back up at Voterama. Good to be back. Thank you for the inquiries about my well-being to all my colleagues. And he took to the floor and he thanked everybody for sending him food and well wishes. Wishes and the phone calls and the food. And he launched right into a a lecture to the people of his state saying... If you haven't been vaccinated regarding the COVID problem, you need to get vaccinated. We need to get vaccinated. He said, I got vaccinated and I was still sick as a dog, basically. He sounded terrible as we rounded out into... 4 a.m. he was sitting there with his mask on. So it was the real deal. It was definitely an illustration of how hardcore this whole Bodorama process is. The way you describe these amendments, it sounds like the Bodorama is not about making legislation, but more about making like social media content for ad campaigns next year. Right. So It sounds like me on vacation <laughs> with Instagram. Yes. Some of these senators in the minority revel in voteramas and and I talked about John Kennedy earlier. He he says he just 
he just lo- loves a good Votorama. <laughs> I watched almost the whole thing. I, I will admit that I, I went to bed before 2 a.m., so I missed the, l- the last few hours. But I found it truly fascinating this year, or, or this one, just because it did give us some clues about what are going to be difficult votes, issues for Democrats as they put together this $3.5 trillion resolution. And I found that the, the, the clever amendments on the Republican side, and as you point out, it's mostly Republican amendments. The Democrats are just sort of trying to protect their budget resolution. They're not, they're not really trying to amend it. But I found the, the, the clever ones were the narrower ones on policy where they could discover some Democrats who felt obligated to break with their party. And I, I just want to like go through a, a, a few of the amendments and the kind of votes and sort of break down the strategies here. So sometimes – I noticed you'll have – and first of all, we should point out that there was one senator missing this week, Republican Mike Rounds. Mm -hmm. So we didn't really have a 50-50 Senate. We had a 50-49 Senate, right? Right. Okay. So a lot of the votes were either 99 to 0 or 50 to 49. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the 99 to nothing vote because I feel like this this was part of a sort of democratic strategy of – um, well, you're going to tell us, uh, you know, you're going to put forward a, uh, an amendment to do X because you want us to vote against it. No way. Uh, we're all going to vote uh, for it together. So let's start with like the ninety, the 99 to nothing vote and that sort of strategy of just sort of jumping on the bandwagon. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the first amendments that got adopted was an amendment by John Thune, who is the Senate minority whip. And the soundbite version, the amendment, um, it sounds pretty good what John Thune was was trying to get people to vote for, which actually was adopted unanimously, was um, an amendment that targeted Democrats' plan to go after dynastic wealth. And he basically said that the proposal that the Biden administration has put forth to make people pay money basically when a when a farm or a business turns over through a family through generations that you'd have to pay taxes on that and the democrats try to put up a side by side amendment and they often do that to try to say i know you're tempted to vote on this but let's vote on this other other plan and that didn't really work out so the thune amendment got adopted and i i have the thune quote up here he said Changing this would hit generations in rural communities and force families to pay off part of the farm or business to pay the new tax. And that sounds not good. So people voted in favor of, you know, and I think Democrats kind of learned when Democrats moved to enact the, the stimulus in March, they had two Bodoramas and Democrats seemed then like they really didn't want to side with Republicans on some of these more gotcha amendments because... They want to stick to their principles. This time around, I think they were a little bit resolved to, to just kind of shrug them off and say, well, this is a non-binding amendment anyway. The amendment you cra- crafted doesn't even do what you say it does. So yeah, I'm going to vote in support of that. So 
definitely what you're saying. It it was a litmus test for these policies going forward. Who who in the Senate is going to vote with Republicans on abortion? That was the that was the litmus test, and the answer was Joe Manchin and no other Democrats. So that's something that we haven't necessarily tested in several years. That's really interesting. What you're saying is the Democrats decided to do a little bit more of the right. We're not going to be stupid and vote against these. You know, we'll just make it like a, a 99 or 100 to, to, to nothing vote and you won't have a campaign ad uh, to use a, a, against us. What you're saying is there are a little bit more of those kinds of votes this time than than last time. Yeah. So so you could see Democrats making some calculations about what amendments they wanted to support and what amendments they didn't want to. So they didn't wholesale reject every single thing the Republicans put. And you had kind of different levels of the same type of amendment. So one example was Roger Marshall had an amendment that would bar DHS from transporting immigrants from the southwest border and unless they have a negative COVID test. And Democrats argued that that would keep people detained for too long and might result in some terrible conditions for people. But ultimately, enough of them voted in support. It actually was adopted 88-11. And then you have Ted Cruz's amendment falling uh, that says they're going to deport people if they may contribute to the spread of coronavirus. So uh, kind of an interesting contrast there where Democrats were willing to uh, go out on a limb and vote with Republicans on this kind of immigrants spreading coronavirus narrative and not with them on on very similar amendments. So what you're saying is Republicans know that immigration is a issue that can divide Democrats and is one that's politically sensitive for Democrats. And if they put forward enough amendments with different language on this issue, at some point they're going to find the sort of the sweet spot where it divides Democrats and some of those Democrats come over and vote with them. So they're sort of testing the solidarity of the opposition on some of these hot button issues. Right. Absolutely. And I think they learned that from Donald Trump on, you know, the former president really based so much of his political success on immigration issues and the border wall. And I think that that brand of politics has really flourished in recent years. And that's why we see so many of these amendments popping up. And and Democrats haven't taken major action on immigration at all. And they have the majority. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot to exploit there. So one other dynamic I noticed that I thought was interesting and sort of tests the debating skills of each side is, you know, sometimes you'd have this uh, a Republican senator put forward an amendment that they thought was uh, very clever and they'd have this aha moment and the Democrats would come right back with um, something on a related subject that would uh, essentially say uh, – you're calling us hypocrites on issue X. Well, try voting on this. <laughs> um, we're going to expose your your hypocrisy on that issue. The, the, one example that I, th- I thought was pretty fascinating was with Senator Grassley and Senator Wyden had a, a, a sort of tit for tat hypocrisy volley. Now, hear me. You'll be shocked what the Democrats want to do in their budget. Where Grassley got up there 
and said, well, Democrats don't really care about taxing the wealthy because they want to include this uh, state and local tax relief in their budget. If my Democrat colleagues are genuine in their concern about the wealthy paying too little taxes, their budget is not the way to do it. And he puts forward this amendment trying to get rid of that. Vote to support my amendment to impose restrictions on repealing and modifying the SALT cap that would result in tax cuts for the wealthy. And he does have a point. SALT relief does benefit uh, wealthier taxpayers. Senator from Oregon. Mr. President and colleagues, our tax bill will be progressive. And then Wyden came back with an amendment and said, are you guys really talking about the progressive tax code? Okay, if you really believe that, here's an amendment, uh, you know, endorsing progressivity in the in the tax code. And of course, all the Republicans uh, voted against that. There was this another similar volley on defunding the police between Senator Tuberville. The local leaders across the country have decided the woke thing to do is cancel their city's police force. When Senator Klobuchar. Before I came to the Senate, I saw firsthand the vital role that law enforcement officers play in keeping our citizens safe. What's going on in those moments and how um, how much are they sort of telegraphed in advance? Or is this just like good, smart work on the Senate floor in, in real time? So they're all pretty good at thinking on their feet. And also many of the senators say the same thing over and over. So uh, <laughs> so some of these sound bites are pretty baked into their brains. And yeah, a lot, it's, it's, un, it's an unscripted battle in, in many cases. So obviously, if you have two side by side amendments, you have you know, one that's proposed and you kind of have a counter amendment. You probably thought that through. You maybe came up with your counter amendment on taxes because you, the senator, kind of anticipated that that Republicans were going to go down this line of attack. But, you know, we talk to Ron Wyden all the time. He's the chairman of the finance committee and um, he is incredibly quick on his toes and incredibly quick to accuse Republicans of being hypocrites. So on, you know, on all kinds of things. So that the most recent has been um, what's going on with the debt limit. And he likes to remind everybody that Democrats voted with Republicans to remedy the debt limit when it was their Congress and they were in control and they were in control of the White House and um, that Republicans should now vote with with Democrats on that. So so, yeah, I mean, they've got these uh, you're a hypocrite lines of attack down, Pat. So one thing that is not in this budget that seems like it's going to be a big issue this fall is a debt ceiling increase. Um, you and your colleague, Caitlin, have been breaking some of the news on this issue First of all, explain to us what the debt ceiling is <laughs> and why uh, it wasn't part of the budget resolution or Voterama and what's likely to happen now. So we have $28 trillion in debt as a nation and our waiver on being able to borrow has expired. It expired on July 31st. So right now the Treasury Department is just trying to kind of scrap around, make sure that the money coming in matches the money going out until Congress acts. And Democrats have made a calculated decision to not include the 
a debt limit remedy in the reconciliation process that they're moving forward with to enact this $3.5 trillion social spending plan. Uh, Republicans are saying you have the ability to solve this on your own. You've shown that you can enact major legislation without Republican votes. Knock yourself out. We're not going to help you. And so far, you know, it's just, it's a cliche, the classic game of political chicken, put it in almost every story about this, but it really is. Who is going to flinch when Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer eventually brings the debt limit question to the floor? Are more than 40 Republicans going to vote no and sink it and have the headlines be that the nation could default on its loans, throwing the economy into, you know, a catastrophe. And that happened because Republicans wouldn't band together with Democrats to remedy the debt limit in the way that Democrats banded with Republicans when they were in control. So it's unclear who's going to flinch. But I think what doesn't get as much attention is that going through reconciliation to remedy the debt limit, you don't have as many options. The two main paths are you can raise the debt limit or you can waive the debt limit. And that sounds super complicated and boring, but if you just waive it, you can choose a date sometime in the future and say, we don't have to worry about the debt limit until this date in one year or two years or in one month or two months, whatever date you pick. If you raise it, you have to choose a number and that number is going to be north of $28 trillion. And uh, that's harder. Saying you want to raise the ceiling to $35 trillion or something like that is going to be a much harder vote. It's not guaranteed that you would get somebody like Joe Manchin uh, to vote on that in the Senate. Even somebody like John Tester might not vote in favor of that. So your whipping operation among Democrats to actually set a number and raise the debt ceiling to a specific number is going to be much more difficult. The other downfall of that is that you don't know exactly when that number is going to then come haunt you again. Is it going to be right before election day when Democrats are trying to regain the majority in some future year? Is it going to actually be really awesome and ruin life for Republicans? You just don't know. So it's the setting a number is is less desirable. The big catch is that most lawmakers think that you have to set a number if you're going through reconciliation and you want to sideline Republicans and you want to go it alone. Uh, it's never, ever been done before that the debt limit has simply been waived without a number under reconciliation. So their options are limited. So when Republicans say Democrats can just do it themselves, they're right. Democrats can remedy the debt limit themselves, but Democrats can't waive the debt limit themselves. They can only raise the debt limit. So this is the biggest story of the fall. It's going to affect every single major negotiation for months to come. If there is some deal to punt on it and waive until December or something, it's just going to set up another Christmas cliff. Christmas cliff? Yeah, Christmas that, cliff. That sounds like that sounds like a, a, a diving spot or a vacation spot. The Christmas yeah. cliff. What? Tell us, what is the Christmas cliff? So almost every year, somehow we end up with deadlines punted right up into December because that's when lawmakers want to leave for the holidays. And so you'll you'll get government funding actually expires, you know, on September 30th. New fiscal year starts on October 1st. But 
that's never when the pressure point really is. Usually lawmakers act to kick the can and the can gets kicked to December. Sometimes we go into November and then we go again in December. Almost every year we go to the first week of December, then the second week of December, then the third week of December, and then right up by New Year's or Christmas or something like that. So December is almost always totally painful and it would surprise nobody in the Capitol if we were dealing with the debt limit and a crisis like that up in December again. So just to summarize the options on the debt ceiling right now, the default so far is that Schumer has said, we're not doing this in the 50-vote reconciliation process. Mitch McConnell, you need to provide us with 10 votes to solve this. McConnell, even before that decision was made by Schumer, said, sorry, you guys want to add, <laughs> you guys want to do a three and a half trillion dollar uh, budget, you can also uh, ra- raise the, the debt limit. And what you're saying is that 50 vote process reconciliation, it's never even been done before in that process. So they've Congress has raised the debt limit through reconciliation before. Never before have they waived the debt limit. And most leaders on Capitol Hill believe that it, that that would not be allowed, that the parliamentarian would say that's not allowed. So, Jen, just to take a step back here. All right. We're in uh, August. Uh, everyone in Congress is going home for recess. And the Biden administration, Democrats seem to have accomplished a lot with these two tracks. They passed through the Senate their infrastructure bill. They passed the $3.5 trillion budget. They've punted on the question, uh, the very fraught question of, of the debt ceiling. But the hard part really just starts now, where they've actually have to, they have to write the legislation for this $3.5 trillion budget. They've got to somehow maneuver both through the House, where there are all sorts of uh, political obstacles. What have we learned this year through the Votorama with these back and forth amendments to kind of smoke out Democrats uh, on, on various sensitive issues through the infrastructure negotiations where policies were in and then and then out and through the Bernie Sanders putting together this giant budget bill. What are the big takeaways and what should people be watching as the sort of act two begins uh, when everyone comes back from recess? And what are some of the the lessons in terms of the Biden agenda that the two parties have learned so far this year. I think you're absolutely right that this is this is a starting point. And you're absolutely right that this $3.5 trillion plan is a mountain. And Bernie Sanders is ready to move mountains. <laughs> he is just laser focused on this. And I think, you know, usually... When you listen to floor remarks at the end of a big vote, like the the end of the 14-hour voterama, the speeches aren't really tangible in a way that you can figure out what is going to happen next. But I think when the majority leader got on the floor after the last voterama vote at 4 a.m., he said it best. And Chuck Schumer said... What we're doing here is not easy. Democrats have labored for months to reach this point, and there are many labors to come. This is a massive step forward, 
And Democrats have labored for months to reach this point, and there are many labors to come. But I can say with absolute certainty that this will be worth doing. And he said that the budget would have a generational transformation for the American economy. And Bernie Sanders has been saying the same, that this that if Democrats can enact this $3.5 trillion plan, it will be the biggest thing that happened since the New Deal. And you don't enact the biggest thing since the New Deal in a 50-50 Senate, in a razor-thin majority House, without a hell of a fight. And the fall and the winter are going to be a grind. Jen, thank you so much for taking us through that. And I hope you're able to get some sleep during recess. Nap time. Thank you so much. And that's our show. Our producers are Adrian Hurst and Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament, And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by The Mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. We'll take you behind the scenes of Capitol Hill again next week on another Playbook Deep Dive. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening. Oh, and before you go, Jen needs some advice. Jen, take it away. Hey, Leader McConnell. It's, uh, it's Jen. If you're listening, I was just hoping to get your advice. When you say no, Republicans won't help Democrats remedy the debt limit. Does that mean maybe? Is there any amount of liberal groveling or defense funding that might change your mind? Also, just wondering whether you think I should drink a five-hour energy before the final voterama on the $3.5 trillion plan, or whether it's like a more of a vodka Red Bull type of a thing. Anyway, I love sunrises, but not necessarily from the Senate. If you want to hit me back, I'm at jschultis at politico.com. Thanks for keeping it interesting. <laughs>